My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the elders with our church, uh, focused primarily up at the Edmonds Expression. Uh, but I do always enjoy being back here with you in this way as we open our Bibles together and continue this journey through the book of Luke. We're, we're landing at the final five verses of chapter nine of the book of Luke. Um, so let me, let me read this passage. I think you'll see the words scrolling on the screen. And then let's take some time to talk about it. <clears throat> as they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere, to, no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first, let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first... Let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so this is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God to that. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Luke and the New Testament as a whole, and I, I know many of you are, you know that all across the pages of the New Testament, there are uh, literally hundreds of passages that kind of present to us a Jesus who is incredibly warm and wonderful, who is tender and kind and compassionate. And here at the Hallows Church, we love to talk about those passages. But today's passage is not really one of those. This passage today is, does not uh, seem very warm or wonderful at all. This passage is not really a, a tender passage. It's actually a very, very tough passage. The words that Jesus speaks here are pretty confrontational and even controversial. This passage and others like it do not really get a lot of good PR for Jesus. You've got three men here who approach Jesus, who seem to uh, sincerely want to, to follow him. They come up and they say, let's do this, Jesus. I'm ready to follow you. And what does Jesus do? He kind of sets them back on their heels, right? He, he he confronts them. He, he startles them. And he may have startled some of you too. In fact, after Jesus is done with these guys here, it does not appear that any of these three men actually continued following Jesus. But why? Why would, why would Jesus say these things? Why would he act these ways? Was Jesus just having a bad day? Was he grumpy? In any case, this is a highly unusual style of evangelism, I think. Based on how Jesus approaches this situation, it seems to me that if he was uh, the pastor of a church, his church wouldn't be growing very fast at all. Most leaders of any sort of movement or institution, they usually want to make it uh, attractive and, and welcoming and easy for people to kind of buy in and to sign on. But not Jesus, not, not here. In fact, quite often across the pages of the New Testament, when you think that Jesus is going to be harsh with someone, you find him instead being very tender instead. And quite often when you think Jesus is going to be tender and welcoming, like, like you think he might be here today with these would-be followers, he comes across instead as, as harsh. When you see Jesus, for example, coming across prostitutes and, and pimps, what does he do? 
He sits down and he eats with them. He spends time with them, gets to know them. And he even gets accused by the religious leaders of the day of being guilty by association. When you see Jesus dealing with people like these, people who have been rejected by society or mistreated by society, the lepers, the losers, the lost, you often see this exquisite tenderness coming from Jesus. On the other hand, when you see Jesus coming across the sorts of people who, let's say, uh, think, think pretty highly of themselves, Jesus usually takes them to task. The self-righteous, the self-important, the self-satisfied. You know the type. You may be the type. I know I have been at different times in, in my life. Here in this passage, Jesus does not say, oh, that's wonderful, you want to follow me, come on, let's go. Jesus does not uh, rush these three over the finish line, so to speak. He does not invite them to pray a prayer or make a a quick decision uh, in that moment. In fact, what he does is he kind of gets up in their business, right? He kind of comes at them and comes after them, and he seems to be saying, slow down. You're not thinking carefully about this. I don't I don't think you really are understanding what I'm going to be asking of you. And so in a very real way, each one of these three men, they represent really a a different kind of of misunderstanding about, about following Jesus. And in an interesting way, we're going to see Jesus going after these three men in three different ways. We're going to see him uniquely confronting these three men in the particular areas of their hearts where Jesus knew that was needed. And so let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the ways that Jesus confronts these men in this passage. And let's talk, too, about how he may intend to uh, confront us today in our own hearts where that may be needed. The first thing you see Jesus confronting with these three men, I think, is really their priorities. He's going to be challenging them on how they're ordering their lives and what they're centering their their lives on. Jesus is saying here, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to truly follow me, you need to reset and recenter your priorities, and you need to establish me as a new priority, as as your highest priority. Let's look at the first man in verse 57. We're told this, that as they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Anywhere you go, let's do it. This guy seems eager. He sounds fully committed. And that's a good thing, right? That's a great thing. He says, I'm in, Jesus. I'm I'm all in. So there's certainly nothing wrong with what this guy says. It's a fine statement. It's It's a right statement. But Jesus, he knew that there was something, something wrong beneath that right statement in this man's, in this man's heart. In fact, Jesus could discern what was going on inside of this man and and inside of other people too. Luke, the author of this book, makes that clear for us in several places. In Luke chapter 5, verse 22, again in Luke chapter 6, verse 8, we're told that Jesus would at times perceive the very thoughts of the people around him. And last week, you may remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, the disciples Uh, they started arguing about who among them was the greatest. And in verse 47, Luke told us that Jesus, he 
He knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew their thoughts. And so as we think about this passage today and ask the question, why would Jesus come at these men in these very abrupt and even abrasive ways, we need to understand that Jesus, he was aware of some things that were going on beneath the surface in, these, in the hearts of these men. And this is the reason, I think, he says the things he says to each man in the passage. With the first man, this guy is coming in pretty fast, right? He was eager and excited. He says, I'll follow you anywhere you go. And Jesus says, are you sure about that? Slow down. Now, from the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and the parallel account of this same interaction, we know that this first man was a scribe. Scribes were very esteemed people. They were highly educated. They were experts of the law. They were typically very well off. And generally speaking, across the New Testament, scribes were usually hostile toward Jesus. In fact, later on, we're going to be told that the scribes, they joined in with the Pharisees and the chief priests calling for Jesus to be, to be killed. And so what better type of person for Jesus to add to his growing group of disciples at this stage, right, than a scribe? They could, this could have been a key moment, a key convert for, this, uh, for Jesus if he was just to get this guy to kind of sign on. But instead of saying, welcome to the team, we're happy to have you, Jesus says something in verse 58 that sounds kind of unusual. He says this, he says, Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man, referring to himself, has no place to lay his head. And so what does that mean? Why does he say that? I think he says that because he's going after the particular area of this scribe's heart that needed to be confronted and it has to do with that phrase, no place to, to lay your head. And I think what Jesus may be saying is something like this. Thank you very much for your interest. I see you have a comfortable standard of living, a comfortable home, a comfortable life. How important are these things to you? Are you willing to give those up for me? Are you willing to be uncomfortable for me? You do know I'm homeless, right? We won't be staying at the Ritz. Do you realize what kind of savior I've come to be and what that means for you? If you want to follow me, the way up is going to be down. The way to victory will be through defeat. The way to the crown must go through the cross. Are you okay with that? Are you willing to follow me in spite of that? Then Jesus, he moves on to the second and third guys here. They also say they want to follow him. And notice the language used. It's the, it's the same in both cases. They both say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. But before I start following you, I just need to take care of a few things. In verse 59, the second guy says, yes, I'll follow you, Jesus. But he says, first, first let me go bury my father. Then I'll be back. Then I'll be ready. And then the third guy in verse 61 says this. He says, yes, I will follow you, Lord. But first... Let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. Then I'll be back, Jesus. I'll, I'll see you soon. Now, it does seem appropriate, doesn't it, to, to arrange a funeral for your father? And there's really nothing wrong, is there, with going back to say goodbye to your family and your, your friends? There's nothing wrong with what they ask. But again, Jesus, I think, is discerning a, 
a wrong heart condition underneath these statements that sound reasonable and, and even right. And again, it's that heart condition Jesus is going to be going after here. Now, it does need to be said, I think, that with this second guy, when he says, I need to go bury my father, commentators agree that this guy's dad was not literally dead. Because if he was, Jewish custom would have had this guy back home dealing with the, the situation, not out wandering the desert with and hanging out with Jesus. In fact, many commentators think that what this man was really saying when he said, let me go bury my father first, was this. He was saying something like, look, Jesus, I've, I've lived too long to leave this place without first getting what I have coming to me, my inheritance. In fact, the figure of speech, bury my father, was a way back then of talking about that very thing, of, of getting a family estate in order when a father did die. And so he seems to be saying, I really want to follow you, Jesus, but first, first I need to get what I have coming to me. You see, Jesus, I did overhear that last conversation when you, when you told that guy he may not have anywhere, to, anywhere to, to, to lay his head. Clearly, the resources are pretty meager here, Jesus, but who knows, maybe I could even help with that. So I think it would be better for me, Jesus, if I do it this way. I'll catch up with you a bit later once I have a good fallback position in place. You know, just in case things don't work out between us. And when you think about it this way, you can maybe understand a little better why Jesus, knowing this man's heart, would say what he says in verse 60, where he says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. And that is a, that's a rebuke, to be sure. And again, if there was really a decaying body sit, sitting back at his house, Jesus would not have, would not have said this, but he did. He's, he's confronting the second man about his priorities, just like he did with the first man, and he's saying they're out of whack. This man's priority was his inheritance. He wanted to ensure that he would have a secure and stable and certain future. So he says, yes, I'll follow you, Jesus, but first, let me go take care of this. And then there's the third man. He wanted to go home and say goodbye to his family and friends. That doesn't sound so bad. But then Jesus says this to him in verse 62. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, plowing was very common back then. It was, it's used to prepare soil for, for planting crops. And without going into too much detail, what's important to know is that when you put your hand to the plow, so to speak, when you plowed the soil in that time and place, you had to be extremely focused. You couldn't really take your eyes off what you were doing because the, if you did, the consequences could be significant. In fact, to put one's hand to the plow, that phrase, it was a figure of speech, actually. And what it, what it meant back in that day was to have a very singular, undistracted focus and commitment to a particular task at hand. And Jesus is saying, unless you do that, unless you are that, when you're my follower, he says you're not fit for my kingdom. Jesus is simply saying, as a follower, you have to be utterly focused on me. There's no looking away. There's no looking back. You need to minimize distraction. By the way, when he says fit for the kingdom, that word there, fit, it also really means useful. 
at first glance, when you see that word fit, it almost sounds like he's saying, unless you're totally committed and your priorities are perfectly worked out, you don't qualify for my kingdom. But we know that can't be the case because no one qualifies for the kingdom of God. It's, it's all by grace. But what Jesus is saying, I think, is that unless your relationship with me is your highest priority in your life, you will not be very useful to me or for me in your life. This man's highest priority was his family and his friends, and Jesus knew that, and Jesus pressed into that. And so do you hear what each one of them is saying? They're, they're saying, I'll follow you, Jesus, if, if you let me do this or, or do that. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as. As long as it's not too uncomfortable, as long as it pleases my family, as long as I have a bit of a backup plan in place. And so you see what they're doing, right? They're putting certain conditions on their relationship with Jesus. But what seems clear is what Jesus is saying to these three men is there cannot be any conditions. That's not how it works. That's the reason I think Jesus is so harsh here. He's saying to follow me means to, to make me king and to step into my kingdom. And if there are any conditions at all, you're still operating in your own kingdom, not mine. The 5th century philosopher and theologian Augustine before he had a radical conversion to Christianity, we know that he had a mistress at one point, and he was living with his mistress. And the story goes, at one point, he went to hear a famous preacher named Ambrose of Milan, and, and during that sermon, as he was listening, Augustine became very convicted by, by what he was hearing about, about the holiness of God. And after that experience, Augustine, he wrote a very famous prayer, a very honest prayer that that some of you may relate to. As part of that prayer, Augustine said this. He said, Lord, make me good. I want to be good. Lord, make me good, but, but not just yet. And we do the same sorts of things, don't we, in different areas of our lives. I want to follow you, Jesus, but, but this part of my life is very important to me. This relationship I'm in right now is very important to me. My career is very important to me. The things I'm viewing online are, are, are very important to me. Yes, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be good. Make me good, Lord, but, but not just yet. Jesus says, be very careful with any but firsts or if onlys or, or not yets. He says, if you want to follow me, I must be first. And here's the thing, if you say, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first, whatever it is on the other side of that but first, whatever it is on the other side of that if only or that not yet, it's revealing the real non-negotiable in your life. That's, that's the real master. That's the real thing that you're following. This is actually very important, I think, and very practical for us because it is very easy for our our priorities in our lives to get out of order and to get off center. And as a result, we kind of find ourselves floundering in our walk with Jesus and not being very useful at all to him or for him. And before you know it, you're basing your life on things other than Jesus. And so quite regularly and quite uh, repeatedly, we need to reorder and kind of reset and recenter the things, things in our lives. 
Sometimes at my home, my washing machine, it gets all of the wet clothes more on one side of the drum than other during the, the wash cycle. And then, then during the spin cycle, as, it, as the drum begins spinning faster and faster, the drum kind of gets pulled off center. And before you know it, that drum starts to bang against the side of the washer, and the washer starts to bang against the side of the wall. It sounds like someone's in there with a sledgehammer. And so I run to the laundry room, I lift up the lid, and what do I, and what do, I do? I have to move things around, right? I have to redistribute things back around the center to prevent all that commotion from happening again. Or think about the moon. The moon is basically a big piece of rock. And the only reason it's doing pretty well up there is because it's orbiting around its intended center, which is the Earth. And the Earth is doing okay too. Why? Because it's orbiting around its intended center, which is the sun. If something is built to orbit around a particular center, and if it moves off that center, there, there will be problems. There will be collisions and chaos and, and damage done. And Jesus is saying, I am your center. You've been designed to orbit around me. And if you center yourself on anything at all other than me, things in your life will eventually begin to collide. Damage will be done. And so, friends, we need to regularly and repeatedly be assessing the status of our own hearts. And occasionally, we need to stop everything. We need to lift the lid and look inside and say, what is going on here? We need to rearrange and realign everything in our hearts back around our true center, Jesus. And so Jesus is challenging us to consider our priorities in this passage and how we're ordering things in our lives and and to consider what needs to be reset or recentered. And so I hope this morning, today, you'll take him up on that, on that challenge. But we also see Jesus in this passage challenging these men to, to really lean into a, a new identity, to embrace a new identity, a, really a restructured identity that only, can only be found in, in following him. A little bit earlier in Luke chapter 9, a couple weeks back, Jesus was also talking there about, about what it means to follow him. You may remember. Take a look again at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. It says, Then he, he being Jesus, said to all of them, If anyone wants to, there it is, follow, follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So Jesus is saying that to follow me means to deny, to deny yourself. And the word used here for deny, it's a word that means to refuse to associate with. And so Jesus seems to be saying, if you want to come after me and follow me, you have to come to the point where you refuse to associate any longer with the person that you are. More specifically with the, the the sinner that you are. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg in the year 1517, the fourth of those 95 theses talked about this self-denial. And, and get this, Luther called it self-hate, a hatred of your own sinful nature. And he said it's essential to entering the kingdom of God. He would say you have to reach that point where you hate or you hate that part of yourself and you no longer want to associate with it. Our culture today tells us how important it is to, to love ourselves, 
to accept ourselves. But Jesus here is saying you need to deny yourself and even, even hate yourself. They couldn't, they couldn't be any more different. And as you keep reading, Jesus puts it another way in verse 24. He says, you not only need to deny yourself, you need to, he says, lose yourself. Listen to verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever, but whoever loses his life because of me will, will save it. So Jesus is saying, whoever will deny himself, whoever will lose his life for my sake, will actually find his life and will find himself. Jesus is actually talking here about finding your true self, your true, your true identity. And the reason I say that is because that word life in verse 24, it's not, it's not the word for physical life. Jesus is not saying you need to lose your life physically. There's another Greek word, a perfectly good Greek word for that. It's the word bios, from which we get our word biology. But he doesn't use that word. Instead, the word Jesus uses, the word translated life in verse 24, it's, is the Greek word psyche. And psyche is the root of our word psychology. So when Jesus is talking about losing your life for his sake, there's a sense in which he's talking about our, our psychological life, our, our inner life. And what he's saying, I think, is, is quite radical. Jesus is saying your old way of having an identity, the old, your old way of, of gaining a sense of self has to be over. You have to, in a sense, die to it, to refuse to associate with it. And as you do, he says, I will restructure an entirely new one for you. So Jesus is talking about how we can figure out who we really are and find our true selves, right? Everyone wants that, don't they? Our culture certainly has a lot to say about this. Our culture says the most important thing in this life is, is to find yourself, right? And the way that you do that, many would say, is to tap into your deepest feelings and your deepest desires. You are whatever you feel you are. Figure out how you feel, and that will tell you who you are. That's where you find and form your true self, your true identity, some would say. Of course, there are some problems with that, I think. Think about your feelings. If who you are is based on how you feel, what are you left with when your deepest feelings collide and, and contradict themselves, which, which they do and they will? You really want that great career, but you really want that great family life, too. You want to make more money, but, but you want to work less, have more free time. You really want to lose that extra weight that you put on, but you really want to eat that box of Oreos, too. How do you know which feelings are, are deeper than others? And what happens when you build your life on your deepest feelings and desires only to find that down the road, one year, five years, ten years later, that your, deeper, your deepest feelings have changed, because they will. If you've lived long enough, I think you know this. And so can we really trust our, our feelings? I know I can't. In fact, I've learned that who I am, my identity in Christ. It's not really about how I feel at all. It's about trusting Jesus in, in spite of how I may feel. 
If you think about this carefully, you know that so many of our feelings are in tension with one another. They contradict one another, which leaves you with an incredibly unstable identity if you're trying to define yourself by them. One commentator said this, he said, trying to guide your life by your feelings, trying to make sense of what your deepest feelings are, and basing your life on that, he said, trying to do that is like trying to drive a car by putting your foot down all the way to the floor on both the brake and the accelerator at the same time. He says your feelings will inevitably pull you apart. Many will tell you that you can find yourself based on what you feel about yourself and what you feel inside yourself. But Jesus says it's not going to work in the end. He says it's unstable, it's unsustainable. You'll never find yourself by trying to find yourself. You'll only find yourself, he says, by when you begin to, to lose yourself. And we'll talk about what that looks like in a moment. But first, our final point this morning, Jesus is going to also challenge these three men that if they truly follow him, they will not only find a new priority and a new identity, they'll find a whole new purpose in life too. They will embody a new purpose for Jesus. We get a few hints at this in this passage. Remember in verse 60, Jesus said this. He said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go spread the news of the kingdom of God. Now, one thing is clear. The physically dead cannot bury the physically dead. And so Jesus must be talking about those who are spiritually dead here in the first part of this verse. And so I think what Jesus may be saying is that what I want you to do as my followers is to go, to, to go out and to, and to bring to life those who are dead, those who are spiritually dead. How? By telling them about me and the kingdom of God. By telling them what I can do for them, that I can raise them, spiritually speaking, into a new identity and a new life, not based on who they are or what they do, but based on what they believe about, about me. Go and tell them how I died in their place for their sin. Go and spread this good news. Bring the dead to life. That's what I want you to do, Jesus says. And this is an important purpose, of course, for each one of us as followers of Jesus, talking about him, telling people about him. I know it's a challenge in a place like this. Many people, it seems, do not want to hear very much about Jesus at all, but we need to challenge ourselves in this, just as Jesus is challenging the man in this passage. We need to be ready to and willing to give a reason for the hope that we have within us. And so our purpose is indeed to talk about Jesus, but our purpose too is to really embody Jesus and to, to show a watching world a completely alternative way to live. Our purpose is to show the world around us what it looks like to, to lose yourself, to deny yourself. And so what does that look like, practically speaking, to lose yourself? Well, I think in many ways it looks, looks like Jesus. I think losing yourself, practically speaking, looks like, like serving rather than being served, just like Jesus did. I think losing yourself, practically speaking, looks like not making everything about you, but instead making everything about others, just like Jesus did. 
I think losing yourself looks like extending forgiveness to those who wrong you or, or even those who revile you. Not once, not twice, not seven times, but seven times, 70 times, as Jesus says in Matthew 18. I think losing yourself, practically speaking, looks like simple and consistent acts of compassion and love and kindness and grace and mercy as you go about your your daily life. Jesus says, instead of trying to find yourself by focusing on yourself, you need to get outside yourself and get over yourself. And you need to instead try to find and focus on, on other selves. And in doing these things, friends, as you lose yourself, by surrendering yourself for the sake of others, that's where you'll find, that's where you'll find yourself. That's where you'll find your true self and your true purpose as a follower of Jesus. But these things are not easy, are they? Where do we find the fuel to kind of help us live this out? Certainly, we lean on the Holy Spirit to help us and to empower us. We are not, naturally speaking, capable of doing any of these things very well, but, but the Holy Spirit living within us is, and so we ask him for help. But I think we also find fuel for living this out by reminding ourselves of this, uh, the identity that Jesus has secured for us. And the fact that it's an identity that we could never have earned or deserved, we did not achieve it, we merely received it by by faith. And so we, we remind ourselves that because of what Jesus did, you and I, we are forgiven. We are adopted. We are redeemed. We are loved and wanted and celebrated by our God, not because of us, but in spite of us. One of the most encouraging and and I would say empowering thing for me as I thought about it this week, what helps fuel me and I hope what may help fuel you too is simply remembering that God knows you deeply, God knows me deeply, and he loves us anyways. Remember how Jesus was discerning the thoughts and the hearts of these men in this passage today and others in the book of Luke? You do know, right, that he's doing that same thing with us, too. Listen to how Psalm 139 puts it. It says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. Many other passages tell us the same sort of thing. Your God, uh, he knows you fully. He knows your every thought. He knows what's going on inside of you at every moment, which, which should terrify you. It does me at some level. And yet we're also told that he loves you fully anyways because of Jesus, which should uh, amaze you and electrify you. It does me. And do you have any idea how much he loves you? Do you know how much the Father loves you because of your faith in Jesus? Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Let me allow Jesus to answer that for you. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 9, about his love for you. He says, as the Father has loved me, just the same way the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. 
And listen to what Jesus says a couple chapters later, John chapter 17, verse 23, about the Father's love for you. He says, I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, and that the world may know that you, Father, have sent me, and that you, Father, have loved them, them being us, as you have loved me. And so do you hear that? Does that register? I hope you'll let that register. Jesus loves you as much as the Father loves Jesus. And as much as the Father loves Jesus, the Father loves you, and you, and you, and me. Because of what Jesus did, because of our faith in what he did, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they have as much love for you and for me as they do for for one another. And so how's that for, for fuel? Let Jesus today confront your priorities to be sure. Consider what you need to reset and recenter in your life. But let this beautiful truth of God's love for you, let it confront your heart too in a good way. Use it as fuel. Be amazed by it. Be changed by it. Be empowered by it. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. Fully known, fully accepted, fully loved. It's a powerful dynamic, and I think it's one, I hope it's one that can help us to recenter the priorities in our lives. It can help us to embrace our true identities in Jesus, and it can help fuel us to live purposeful, useful lives for him. Let's pray together.